Women make up 70% of the healthcare workforce, but only 20% of its leadership. On her story, we'll explore the careers of bold and influential women from Silicon Valley to Capitol Hill and learn how they've overcome the odds. I'm your host, Sandra Jane, and this is Her Story, a program where we explore what's beyond the glass ceiling. I'm delighted to welcome Kelsey Mellard, who's the CEO of Sitka. Kelsey is a dear friend and colleague and has a tremendous career that we're going to dig into from policy to care delivery to now health tech. So Kelsey, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really excited and grateful to be here. You live in San Francisco now. Well, right now you're actually in Tahoe, true West Coaster, but you grew up in the Midwest. Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how that influenced your career ambitions. Yeah, so I grew up just outside of Lawrence, Kansas. Lawrence is probably best known for KU basketball. Both of my parents were professors and had affiliations with the university, which is why we lived there. And that actually had a deep impact on my career. The thing that was kind of the currency in our household when I was growing up was community engagement and impact. My dad was a researcher on adult learning disabilities, and my mom is a pediatric OT and with a faculty appointment at the University Medical Center. And they were very active parents and very involved in our community. And Growing up, I would go on home visits with my mom to see her pediatric patients, which she was providing pediatric occupational therapy services to. And coming home, seeing her make splints in the evening, literally on our stovetop for her clients and her patients, really had a deep impact on how I started to think about my career early on, which is really what drove me into the federal government. And so we can we can dive in a little bit more. But yeah, I grew up in actually a 100-year-old farmhouse outside of Lawrence, Kansas. Grew up playing in cornfields, picking up hay bales in the summer. And in my mind, looking back, had a pretty idyllic childhood and had a lot of time growing up with my two older siblings as well. So it was the time of playing with our kittens and hamsters and running around outside barefoot. And, you know, our parents calling us in for dinner at night was a very typical summer and fall and spring evening for us growing up. I also know that soccer was a big part of growing up. Yeah, soccer was and continues to be a really strong point of reflection and development for me, especially into leadership roles and translating that experience from the soccer field into my career as it continues to develop as well. So I started playing soccer when I was five and played through college and just, you know, continued to play pickup, of course, prior to COVID. Of course, COVID put a little damper on all of that. But soccer was a great outlet and actually an incredible tool for me to learn about what would really actually drive much of my career, which is teamwork and leadership skills. And oftentimes early on in my youthhood, I was playing on an all-boys soccer team. My freshman year of high school, I was starting on an all-boys varsity team. And those dynamics felt really comfortable to me. And so I actually transferred high schools so that I could actually play with all women. And then, of course, go on into play in college at Winona State in, in Minnesota, Division II school. And learning how to balance an athletic career while there's an academic pursuits underway was really an invaluable skill. When you think about resource prioritization, communication, and teamwork, those are all fundamental things that also allow us to be incredibly successful and, and frankly, happy and I think fulfilled in, in the workplace. And I was really fortunate to have those influences really, really early on. Of course, part of those experiences were really shaped by some of the coaches that I had. And I was fortunate enough to have a high school soccer coach who 
really figured out how to motivate me and kind of what made me tick and that he could be really honest with me and that that's what I expected of him as my coach. And that actually continues to feed into the professional world of which we exist in today. He actually served as a reference during our recent fundraising efforts. And so to have a high school soccer coach serve as a reference was a pretty funny thing and almost awkward to be like, hey, you could actually talk to my high school soccer coach who's known me since I was 16 years old and actually had to figure out like how to motivate me in order to get the job done on the field and off the field because there were high expectations of who you were as a high school student if you were going to be affiliated with a varsity sport. And so learning those ropes and, you know, testing the boundaries as most good high school students do, I had my fair share of of those experiences as well, which he was, of course, instrumental in, in guiding and shaping and really keeping me, I'd say, a little bit on the straight and narrow and, and continuing to rise to the challenge. The coaching mindset actually makes so much sense. So for our audience benefit, I mean, the first time, I think the first conversation, Kelsey, you and I had, you were suggesting, oh, you really should put your name out there for this opportunity or that opportunity. You really had this kind of coach first mindset. I'm thinking, well, A, thank you, but also you just met me, but I'm so grateful for it. So I think that coaching philosophy probably st- uh, stems into a lot of how you think through your teamwork and building your teams, which we'll come to in a minute. I want to dig a little bit back to the, the soccer piece because I think it's really interesting that you grew up playing on all boys soccer teams. Like, How has that actually shaped your perspective as a female leader? It's been something that I've had to kind of unravel and actually start to understand in a way that I don't think I really probably have fully appreciated and that my comfort zone on the soccer field was like playing my sport regardless of gender. I was just out there to win and I was out there to win with my teammates and I had a job to do and I was a a defender and sweeper stopper position and that mentality I think has allowed me to think differently about how I engage in the workplace. And oftentimes, you know, especially earlier in my career when I was younger and oftentimes the only female and the youngest person in the room, that that actually wasn't an, oddly enough, that wasn't an uncomfortable space. I was like, cool. And of course, at the time I was not thinking about it like that. Right. And now, of course, I can reflect back to kind of tie these experiences together to then inform, oh, this is not an issue for me because of my early experience on the soccer field, I don't think about it as necessarily a female leader versus a male leader. I think about it as how are we having an impact and how am I motivating my team to actually get the job done? That's that's a massive one ahead of us, but not always thinking about I'm a female leader and therefore now over time, I've had the good fortune of actually learning lessons along the way that there are different expectations of female leaders. And that's been a little bit of an eye-opening experience for me because on the soccer field, the expectation is to win. And to me, the expectation in the workplace is to have an impact, create an awesome team environment, collaborate with your colleagues, and also frankly win. And winning is going to look different for every company, right? But at Sitka, winning looks like you know incredible collaboration with our primary care providers, creating different access points, And so while we have our own definition of, quote, winning at Sitka, I think about the job is still largely confined to we have limited resources, time, teammates, and money, and how do we actually come together to put those to use? And 
that's very similar to the mindset that I grew up with on the soccer field. We have limited resources. There's 11 of us. We better figure out how to beat the opponent in the allotted time in order to continue on. That's a great analogy for healthcare, really. I mean, it's just becoming more competitive and more players and you know more teams. So that that's really applies to so many different subsectors. Yeah. And I didn't realize how strong the bonds actually were between those two experiences. And like I said, I'm continuing to kind of unravel and unpack what that actually is as I start to become a little bit more reflective in my journey, actually, frankly, through conversations like these. I'm so action-oriented that I am really get a ton of energy by creating. And so these moments and actually times of reflection are really important to actually help me even understand where I've been and the different points of impact that I've received along the way to actually influence my career and and where I am today. It sounds like you had some healthcare influences through your mom and, and how you kind of grew up. As you think about your path into healthcare leadership, and you've had a variety of roles, which we're going to dig into in a second, from government to, to tech to care delivery and payer, do you consider your foray into that space as more accidental or intentional? Yeah, I think it's purely accidental for multiple reasons. One of which is I've never been a person that has known what I've wanted to do since I was five years old or 10 or 20. And I still actually don't know what I want to do. I love what I do now, and that's what feeds me, and that's what's important to me. And so I don't think about my career as if I reach X position at X organization, that is how I define success. I think about it much more holistically and really from a journey perspective of in the positions that I've been fortunate enough to have, each of them have offered an incredible recipe of fulfilling my soul, that I feel really good about the work that I am doing and that my contributions tie to the broader mission of the organization, that I'm intellectually challenged and that I feel like I'm actually learning something most days, and that I'm doing it with a team of people that I deeply respect and can continue to learn from. And so as long as I have those three items that I can really align with, then that is the path that I've been on for this accidental career. And I think like many individuals, you're an undergraduate, your parent is a direct provider of care. Oftentimes the only route is, great, I'm going to go to medical school. And I quickly realized medical school was not for me. I was actually in college. I was a care assistant for a home for adults with disabilities. And so there was five women that lived in this house and I would take night shifts and stay there and help them do their daily activities. And that's when I realized one-on-one patient care in any capacity was not going to be the way that I could be fulfilled from an impact standpoint. And so from this concept of going to medical school, then I thought, okay, great. Then law school is the next thing. So then I went and interned with my aunt, who has a pretty successful practice focused on elder care in Connecticut, and interned with her for a summer and decided, nope, that's not it either. So then went into graduate school because I wanted to avoid reality, meaning the real life of actually getting a job. And luckily, graduate school kind of put me on a path. But I'd say all of these places that I've been able to impact and work at have taught me something that I've been able to take to the next place and the next place. And that's the true joy of the career that I've been able to cobble together thus far. Policy uh, was your core anchor. And then you really looked at that from a lot of different vantage points and government and went to DC and then back to the Midwest and back to DC. Like how have those different perspectives actually shaped your thinking about healthcare and leadership today? Walk us through some of those different touch points. 
So I'll start actually straight out of graduate school. It was a two-year program at the University of Kansas for my master's in public administration. The MPA program at KU is actually the number one program for local city government officials. So all of my fellow students were aspiring mayors and city officials and so got a little bit of insight into that from even just a public policy perspective as to the power that local government officials actually have in public health. And obviously, we've seen that more recently with a global pandemic than I think we've ever really cared to realize of the importance of public health infrastructure, but really kind of took that insight and decided, you know, I want to actually go be part of something that's pretty big. And that pretty large and big organization was actually Kaiser Family Foundation. And so that was my first foray into the broader policy community within Washington, D.C., my office was a block from the White House. It was farm town girl in a big city type feeling that I was really, really fed and excited by. At Kaiser Family Foundation, I was an analyst and my whole job was to do all of the analysis for the statehealthfacts.org website. I loved it. That organization is incredible and continued, I continue to use them today as a resource. The challenge that I had personally from a professional development standpoint was I didn't know what people did with it. I, I had no idea how people digested it. Did they use it to make decisions? Was it impactful? And so I realized that I actually wanted closer proximity to the front lines of clinical care decision-making without actually going the medical route. And so went back and was a fellow actually at Children's Mercy, a pediatric hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, and worked directly with the CEO there. And that was an incredible experience in large part because I got to see the breadth of actually what it takes to run a pediatric hospital, which is actually a small city. So I did everything from sit in bond rating meetings with the city to flying on the helicopter during a live transport to following a family and their son through their three-year-old son's open heart surgery. And that was an incredibly foundational experience for me to have to really understand the complexity that our families go through, that our providers go through, that our payers go through. I mean, that is a microcosm of our healthcare delivery system at a regional level for a really important part of the world, which is our future, the pediatric population. And that was a year appointment. And so I think I'd probably still be there today in some capacity if they were like, Kelsey, this is a year appointment, your fellowship, is <laughs> you need to move on. And because it was so fulfilling and I got to take on different projects and traveled to our sister hospital in Guangzhou, China. And so got a little international lens on what the delivery landscape looked like even in, in China. And then took that experience and went to the advisory board company, which took me back out to Washington, D.C., after some time at advisory board company, of course, Obamacare was passing. And that was, of course, a wave of energy that was coming through the DC community, the policy community, the healthcare community, and was fortunate enough to be employee number five at the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation and worked really closely with Rick Gilfillan and Sachin and Don and Joe and kind of that initial crew to set up CMMI and hire several hundred people in a really short period of time. It was incredibly daunting, right? There was a cohort of us that didn't have great depths of experience of working inside the federal government. And so figuring out what authority we had and how we were going to really transition the perspective of our stakeholders, historically being a regulator into being a partner. 
And so we set up a lot of infrastructure to actually engage providers and payers to help us inform actually what these payment delivery models look like. So whether it's ACOs or bundled payments or the Pioneer program, and then of course collaborate with people like Melanie Bellin, the dual eligible office, and our colleague Cindy Mann, who was running Medicaid at the time. So really thinking cross-agency, how do we take the center that has really incredible kind of legislative authority and really kind of catapult the reimbursement system into a value-based system from a fee-for-service system, recognizing that there was tremendous spotlights put on us from the White House to Congress and, and keeping everyone somewhat aligned with the direction and the pace of which we were moving was incredibly fulfilling and and challenging, which of course is what made it so fulfilling is, as we were able to kind of really start to engage and change the perspectives that was really important. One thing that just digging into that, you know, I think, what is it, we are over 10 years now from the time that CMMI was formed. Now we take for granted ACOs, bundle payments, that's just the regular terminology. Go back to that time when that was all brand new. It was just being conceptualized. I mean, what was that actually like where you were sitting in a room and you guys are all talking about these constructs and concepts that really didn't exist? It was all net new. So you had to kind of come up with the idea and then figure out how to execute. What was that like? It was intense. Of course, it's probably an understatement. But to dive into some of the memories or the details, Health and Human Services is right down the street from our nation's capital. And so we would greet our stakeholders every single day. We would have a ton of open door forums. We hosted, it felt like every hospital system CEO to really start to grapple with what was going to work for them and for us and how could we actually co-design this. And so it was a massive effort to engage the future participants of these programs, because if we were to develop these programs inside the Beltway and have no proximity to the challenges and the realities of the front line of our care delivery system at the time, we would have been developing the wrong policies that no one would have frankly signed up for. And so we spent a ton of time just thinking about how can we create some sort of structured conversation to propose ideas, get feedback, and then actually mold and shape the proposed rule and the proposed legislation that that we were pushing forward. I think you come to the federal government, you come to HHS, and there are certainly beautiful buildings within our government system. HHS is perhaps not the, the most stunning on the inside or the outside. And so there was, I think, a little bit of a shock to some of our stakeholders as they walked down this blue carpeted hallway with very few windows and full of cubicles. And that was the federal government, right? Now, of course, that's in contrast to CMS headquarters, which are near Baltimore, which are beautiful and and pretty airy. But HHS, because of the spatial constraints of how many people are trying to operate out of that building, that was like a pretty striking experience, I think, that people would have time and time again that you know, we didn't have snacks. We didn't, you know, we <laughs> couldn't offer them like water, you know, like we didn't have bottled water. There was a water fountain. And we really adopted the concept that as always, our government officials are working on behalf of our taxpayer dollars. But to bring that to another level of, frankly, service and engagement. And so we made rules like we will respond to emails within 24 hours to really show that we were showing up in a different way to create a partnership with them and meet them in large part where they were from an idea perspective and from a capability perspective in order to actually successfully roll these programs out. But 
it's certainly you look at I look at that in, in contrast to at least the environmental considerations in contrast to like Silicon Valley offices right where it's like snacks breakfast lunch and dinner all in one and it's like oh if you'd like something to eat there's a cafeteria on the eighth floor that you can go buy something right and it felt a little counter from a hospitality standpoint but of course really important to use government resources incredibly wisely and that's that's frankly what we were doing I had not thought about that, but in some ways, I mean, you guys really brought true that innovation CMMI, right? You were shaking things up for probably what people had expected for a typical government agency, so to speak. So that's really great. From CMMI, you then went to United. What prompted that leap? That's a big shift from government to big national payer. Yeah. I think one of the the beauties of these types of conversations is that we can be a little bit more honest and just authentic in our conversation. And frankly, I was actually going through a divorce and I didn't want to go through that divorce financially constrained. And so working in the federal government, while it is an incredible gift to serve the country, I wanted to actually become a little bit more financially independent in order to go through a a life decision. And so working at United Health Group gave me that flexibility personally and financially, but it also gave me, and, and most importantly, gave me insight into what it's like to work for a publicly traded company and our healthcare delivery system. And so, you know, United Health Group continues to rise the ranks of the Fortune Six company now. At the time, I think we were closer to like 27 or 28, but still had sizable impact. And I loved it. It kept me in DC. It kept me part of the policy conversation and really allowed me to serve as a translator between the business of making an impact from a United Healthcare perspective and an opt-in perspective, because this was also a time when the UHG family in general was acquiring a lot of different assets. And so to translate that into the policy land and vice versa, and to translate policy back to the business land. And it was a total blast to really see the inner workings and the complexity of what it's actually like to work at a publicly traded company. So from United Health Group, I had an opportunity to go to Navi Health. And at that time, Tom Scully, former CMS administrator under Bush, called me and said, Kelsey, Welsh Carson, where I'm a partner, we just are starting this company called Navi Health, and I think you need to come join us. We're going to be a bundled payment company. And I was like, Tom, but I'm kind of like really loving this. I'm a vice president in my 20s at a publicly traded company. I'm really satisfied and feeling really good about my choices. That conversation, of course, continued for a period of time, which eventually led to my departure from United Health Group and joining Navi Health. Navi Health was a total fulfilling blast and allowed me to have incredible proximity to actual Medicare beneficiaries, changing the workflow of frontline providers to really meet the needs of what bundled payments could actually offer them financially and from a clinical workflow design standpoint. So my job in a nutshell was to fly around the country to these large health systems and convince them that bundled payments was a safe place to start the game of risk and to take on risk because you could limit it pretty aggressively. You could drop episodes if you didn't want to. Each quarter, there was that option. And so it was an incredibly flexible program in contrast to ACOs, which you would get attributed lives and you were kind of stuck with them. Once you found them, they were yours and you needed to manage. Whereas bundled payments, you could actually have a lot more customization based on the clinical episodes that our hospital partners would initiate and then we would manage from a post-acute care perspective. And that was 
such a fun ride. We successfully stood up bundled payments across the country with very large health systems like Dignity, who I still talk to Rich Roth on, on the regular, and really started the foundational aspect of my foray into really, frankly, Medicare and senior care. And after Navi Health was successfully acquired by Cardinal, I was recruited out here to the Bay Area and joined Honor after they had just raised their Series A from Andreessen Hurwitz and had the opportunity to work with that founding team and really kind of learn the ropes of Silicon Valley and tech and deciphering tech versus human. And so this whole other perspective that I was able to learn, and of course, that's why I loved it is because of the amount of new ideas and perspectives that I had not been exposed to at that point in my career. Honor was doing really, really well, and I was fortunate enough to have a really good relationship with with Seth, who I still talk to, to to this day. And, you know, starting companies in San Francisco is incredibly normalized. It's just what people do. And it's kind of bizarre. And by the way, it's not normal, but here it feels normal. <laughs> and so that was really kind of the impetus of, I was working on a couple side projects and that was really the start of Sitka in its early foundational days after I left Honor. So much to unpack there. I feel like we could be here for hours. I just want to kind of go back to one thing that you said, just to highlight that. The fact that you were a senior executive in your 20s at a fortune company, I mean, that is no easy feat, right? I mean, that is just something to celebrate. Thinking about the Sitka piece, that's a big leap, helping providers and payers take on risk. And then you decided to kind of take this personal risk, right? Like what prompted that decision? What made you comfortable taking that decision? What was that decision-making process like? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't know if I have fully digested what made me do this and what made me stick through this as well. We're a three-year-old company right now, and it's not always been rainbows and butterflies. And the motivator there for me is really impact. And how can I leave a positive impact on our healthcare system, which is something that luckily I've learned a lot about and feel like I have a little secret weaponry in, in regards to understanding how it works and what has worked in the past and what hasn't worked. So specific to those starting Sitka and kind of the decision-making process of doing that, like I said, part of it is just environmental. In San Francisco, people start companies, it feels normal. And my now husband, who we were dating at the time, I would often say, Kelsey, you make this look so easy. You just went out and raised a seed round. And I'm like, well, I, I don't know. We had to take a lot of meetings though. And he's like, that's still kind of, you, you kind of made it look really easy though. And you selected really good partners and they selected you. So I don't know what about me kind of made that work. I'm incredibly passionate and I felt like I could actually take on the risk and I didn't have kids. I was single. I was like, worst case scenario is that I learned a tremendous amount through this experience, and then I can go find another job somewhere. But this feels like an opportune time to not impact someone else's life by deciding to start this company. And it should it not go well, right? And I think that's what people always think about, like, well, what if it doesn't go well? And, and I think that was my mindset. So in some ways, I wasn't even thinking about, well, what if it goes well? It was always like, well, what if it doesn't go well? And I think that's what many people get hung up on is like, well, what is plan B? What is plan B? What is plan B? And I would say really until recently, until we closed our Series A and until I started really working closely with Bob and Brian at Vinrock, I would come home 
and be like, George, I don't know if we're going to make it. And I would only disclose that to him at the time, of course, because one, I didn't know if that was really true. And I didn't know if I was just continually surprised, like, oh, we learned something and we're doing this now, or we just got this contract. And of course, you know, who knows what making it even means, right? And I think that's part of the challenge that we as a healthcare and entrepreneurial community actually get tied up in, which is what does making it mean? And making it, what does that mean? And I think to me, it's it's really more about the journey as opposed to like where you end up, that as long as you're feeling like you're impacting and learning. And I've felt that every single day at Sitka, that it's been challenging. I've learned something. I've created an opportunity for a primary care provider to provide better care to their members and created an opportunity for a specialist to use all of their skills and capabilities that they've worked so hard to accrue in, in their professional life. And that's what's led us down this journey that we're on today. So Kelsey, for our audience that is not as familiar with Sitka, can you just tell us a little bit about what the company does and who your primary customers are? Yeah, definitely. So as with any good early stage company, we've had our own version of evolution and we've evolved into becoming a virtual provider network. So we really focus on creating better access to specialty expertise by partnering with frontline primary care providers. So as you may know, 40 to 50% of specialty referrals today are unnecessary or inappropriate. And so as opposed to starting that entire journey for that member and incurring the costs and schlepping around the healthcare system, we actually empower the primary care provider to tap into our network of specialty providers, request expertise, and then deliver that expertise back to their member and actually take action on it. It's all done via video, so it's all via video message, and the asynchronous nature allows us to actually increase the efficiency of our entire system, and of course, build incredible trust and bonding between the providers that can actually be shared with the member to increase their transparency as to what's actually being talked about. And so it's a really fulfilling part of what we get to do is actually have these member experiences where they get to see what the specialist said back to their provider and give them lens into not being the subject of the care, but actually being part of the conversation. And so that's what we do at Sitka by partnering with frontline risk-based primary care provider groups. Wow. So you caught the entrepreneurial bug and you're making it look (laughs) easy. I agree. So congratulations on the Series A. That's a a big accomplishment. And tell us a little bit about the journey. So from founding, how have some of the priorities for you personally as CEO kind of shifted from early days is kind of building the company. And I know you're still building, but probably now shifting a little bit more to scaling. Like what are some of the key inflection points that you've had to work through? I think the biggest one personally is that I've, until really recently, I didn't understand what it meant to be a CEO. I was just part of the team. I felt my job was to contribute in any way I possibly could to serve the business. And I still think that's my job. But now I understand that having that CEO title does actually mean something and people think about you differently and people have different expectations of you as a result of it. And so from a personal development standpoint, I think that's been a a massive learning for me over the course of the three years. And really to trust myself a little bit more. I think very early on, I had two co-founders. Unfortunately, neither one of them are are with the the organization anymore. And as each of them decided to depart from Sitka, that really made me shift my own perspective of, okay, I have to do this. Like This is on me to help continue to figure out and drive. And of course, I'm surrounded by awesome teammates that have joined us on this journey. But there was this point of, incredible loneliness 
when you go from a founder with two other co-founders to being the only one still affiliated with what was started, that in and of itself is a journey that we could probably spend an hour on talking about, but certainly one that was pretty big inflection point for the company. There was never any thought in my mind that like we would close Sitka down or anything like that along, along this way. It was very clear to me that we needed to continue to build and learn and charge ahead as the business and the market evolved with us. And that's exactly the path that we're on. So, you know, from raising our seed round to then deciding to take on Optum Ventures as a strategic partner, which we're really appreciative of their partnership. And and then of course, raising a, a Series A, all of those fundraising experiences can certainly be milestones within a company's development. But I think more importantly, our milestones of learning and product improvement and continual positioning of your product in a market until you find that product market fit and just incredible, like you just have to be resilient because you're going to get told no six times before you're going to get told yes, that like, I will buy this product because it makes sense. And continuing to be curious and actually be frankly, motivated by that curiosity has been kind of a, a pretty massive propelling force for me. And I think now the large majority of our team. Well, you've built a really awesome platform and it's going to be really exciting to see what the next few years have in store for Sitka. I want to shift a little bit to the journey to actually getting to where you are now. So you mentioned your soccer coach played a big role in your life. And I know you have a lot of other mentors that many people that you've worked with that have guided you on your career path and pulled you into great opportunities, opened doors for you. What has been the most difficult piece of feedback that you've gotten from a mentor or boss or a colleague? And how did you overcome it? That's a really good question. I love feedback. And so I also think about most of it being really positive because I'm like, great, someone is giving me a massive gift and I want to like absorb it all, the good, the bad, the ugly, so I can do something differently and learn from it. The best feedback that perhaps was difficult was that as a female leader, people have different expectations of me. And I've never bothered to even recognize that because I'm just doing what I know, which is like, I show up to the game every day and I'm not putting on soccer cleats, but I am collaborating and learning and executing. And that's what I know how to do. And and that's what soccer, you know, in a large part taught me how and where and, and what to do. And I think because this category that we're sitting in here today is really around her and being a female leader, I do think it's important that I share that, that people do have different expectations of female leaders and I can be incredibly direct. And I think that that's not always what our society would expect of a female leader. And that's changing. Of course, the expectations of female leaders are changing, but also it's something that I have had to learn to become more aware of because of the way that it can be perceived at times. And so I think that I'm coming across as driving an agenda and moving quickly and learning. And that's not always the perception that people would have in large part because of my gender. And that's been a big challenge for me to actually comprehend because again, it's something that I haven't really let land on me in previous positions because it's like, I'm just here to do a job. It doesn't matter what my gender is or isn't and how I identify. And that's not true. And people make it matter. And because that's their perception, then therefore as a leader, you have to lean in and understand that in order to navigate it and actually make it 
frankly, like part of your superpower and how to actually take that to say, great, I'm going to take this and I'm going to learn from it and test different strategies on not how to be the leader that people expect me to be because I'm female, but really how do you continue to get a team to perform and be a female leader and use the skills and abilities that I have to do that effectively. So that's been a bit of a shift that, that I've had to go through through the course of my career that I wasn't always willing to look at because I didn't frankly see it. I think a lot of us go through that kind of an inflection point you know, along the way. And in the time that we've known each other, I mean, you are really this extraordinary community builder. And you're always talking about how do we bring these teams together and foster collaboration and communication. And I think it's worth noting, I mean, Sitka pre-pandemic was actually fully virtual too. And you've been able to foster this community. And from what you've told me, you probably, you know, you're planning to continue that model being fully remote. Talk just a little bit about how you think about building that culture and community and how you approach that. I love this topic because I think it's really important. And in large part, I had some early experiences where I would go on one trip a year with my dad. So my dad traveled a fair amount for business. He actually traveled to DC a fair amount with his work with the Department of Labor and Department of Ed. And that was my proximity to his work. I got to see him present. I would stand in the back of the lecture hall and hand out papers. And so that was really formative as to my career development too. And and frankly, the unspoken expectations that we had in our household of you will go do something that makes you fulfilled and that has a generally a positive contribution to, to the world, like share your gift with the world was kind of the unspoken expectation. And I got to see my parents do that every single day. And in this virtual environment, one of the things that we try to do a fair amount of at Sitka, and we just said this yesterday, is how do we include kids in people's families, pets, spouses, partners, roommates into the Sitka life? And so we do almost on a monthly basis, some sort of general social activity that does expand to the broader community of where everyone resides. And I think from a development standpoint, and everyone's relationship with work can have tendencies to be frustrating at times because there's points of growth and it can be incredibly fulfilling. And so letting their community in on what Sitka is and who Sitka is along their virtual path has been a priority. And last summer we did a Sitka Littles program, for instance, and each of the kiddos that opted in to participate affiliated with Sitka, grandkids to children and and siblings and such participated in their own series because Ultimately, that's the experience that I think people will remember is, do they see their parents showing up or their friends showing up every day on a laptop? We were just talking to my husband's siblings last night on FaceTime, and I was sitting in front of our fireplace, of course, with my laptop open. He was sitting on the couch FaceTiming, and he spans it to me, and they're like, Kelsey, are you working? And I was like, yeah. And so I think being able to own that with a sense of pride as opposed to saying it like yeah, again, right? Like here I am working again, can have tremendous just impact on how each of our employees feel supported given we are in a virtual environment. And so the question that I always think about is like, how are we building our employees' communities around Sitka as well? And how are we feeding into the locations in which they reside and the coffee shops that they go to? And so that's one of the ways that we think about building community beyond just 
the core team at Sitka, which we spend a fair amount of time together and really creating honest conversation and finding new edges. We have like Monday morning ritual, for instance, which we start each week together. And it's just a time to come together to primarily not talk about work, but it could be what (laughs) happened over the weekend. It could be something that you've learned. It could be something that you're passionate about and really trying to bring the the fact that we all have lives outside of work that are important to maintain and share with each other into some environment of what you can share to create deeper empathy and and really create that sense of connection that I think we're all starving for in, in a global pandemic. That's so refreshing to hear. Speaking of Sitka Littles, you raised your Series A and then in short order after, you had to tell all your investors that you are expecting a little one of your, <laughs> your own later this year. Congratulations. Thanks. Um, how are you planning for that as founder and CEO of your own company? Yeah. And thanks so much for the the warm wishes. We're really excited to be welcoming a little one in September for our first addition to our family outside of, of course, our fur baby Arlo, our Spanish water dog. That time of being like six weeks pregnant and closing a series A and it's that weird window where no one really tells anyone yet and you're feeling things out like what's going to happen and continuing to progress in the pregnancy positively and feeling like I have to tell Bob and Brian that this other thing is coming. And of course, it probably felt like a bigger deal to me than it did them. And so I was 10 weeks pregnant. And during one of our check-ins, I shared the news with them and said, there is something that I I want you to know that is really important and we will navigate through it. But I do want you to know this as soon as I think I we probably told them before I told my family in some ways, because I take that relationship incredibly seriously. And, and they've invested a lot of time and energy and effort and continue to do so. And of course, not to mention money into Sitka. And so I don't know what maternity leave will look like, frankly. This is entering a new world where I won't have tremendous amount of control as to what happens and how the delivery goes and what the baby's needs are after, what my needs are after. And we're in the process of starting to think about plan A versus plan B. But I'll tell you, it's been really challenging when I've been kind of Googling around like founder, CEO, maternity leave. There's a couple instances, right? I think we saw with the Bumble IPO and that CEO having her child as part of that experience, which was really beautiful. There's a few cases like that 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 exist and and experiences that exist, but it's something that there's not a cookie cutter approach to it. And this is kind of create your own adventure. And we'll be doing that in conjunction, of course, with luckily some family support that we're really fortunate enough who who are eager to come out and help. And and then, of course, we've been spending a fair amount of time building our team at Sitka and feeling really positive about the folks that we've been able to welcome to help us get to the next level of organization and frankly, stability. And I do think this is kind of a a test to just broader organizational design, which is maternity leave is not unique. And we as a country still treat it as a pretty unique thing because we're not used to it occurring all that frequently in our workplaces. Same with paternity leave and, and baby bonding is actually what, what it's referred to as, as these days. But if you do a good job building your organization, you know, and you're of certain size, right, there should be enough infrastructure, hopefully, in place to keep things pretty afloat. But there's a couple of variations of plans that we have of, you know, a couple of weeks off to needing more time and how to go completely off versus part time and what that looks like. So we're starting to toy around with some of those models. And luckily, my husband's 
workplace Zooks, which was acquired by Amazon earlier this year, has generous baby bonding time as well. So we'll certainly be taking advantage of that. <laughs> well, like you say, it's choose your own adventure. So we'll, we'll probably have to have you come back once you, so you can share your words of wisdom to everyone else trying to figure it out. For what it's worth, I was chatting with another female founder who will be on the show later this season. And she was saying that similarly, when she first started her company, she had her first child. And I think she returned to the office, like probably on day 10, which she regrets and feels strongly about. But at the time, it was like, that's what you got to do. And so Mm -hmm. there's really no one way to do it to your point. And I think you'll find out what works best for you and your family. So we're excited to see how that plays out. Yeah, thanks. We are too. Great. So so much we could get into, but I think I'll close with a couple of final reflections. You know, you have a plenty more chapters to write in your book and excited to see where you go. What would be the one piece of advice that you'd give your younger self? Yeah, this is no light question here. (laughs) One of the things that I think that I have not necessarily realized in my career or as early as I would have liked to is the differentiation between of like, I'm just doing what I know versus this is who I am and here's what I'm going to do. And I've always been of the path of this is just what I'm doing. Like I'm just doing this as opposed to kind of reflecting a little bit more along the way and recognizing and actually taking deeper ownership of the skills and knowledge and talent that I've accrued. Other people will say that to me of, oh, you're so talented and you know so much, but I've never really let that land because I always feel like it'll get in the way. And I think by not letting it land, I haven't actually grown as quickly or as consciously as I could have from a leadership development standpoint. And so my advice to my younger self and to others would be really listen to how people introduce you or how they refer to your experience and expertise and recognize that in yourself, not to become arrogant, but to actually start to understand how others perceive you in order to actually become a better leader. Because ultimately leadership is about perception and how others perceive you. And we're all the hero of our own story in in those ways. And so how your team perceives you is going to impact your effectiveness as a leader to incredible degrees. And I think I'm finally starting to take those acknowledgements and understand them and let them land on me in a way that I was, quote, too busy for before. I don't have time to say thank you and not to not be gracious, of course, but I wasn't really taking the time to actually understand the unique lens that I was bringing to the conversation. And all of us have incredibly unique capabilities and experiences and lenses and taking a little bit of time to understand what makes you, you, I think will allow you to be more effective founder, leader, colleague, and frankly, probably a happier human. Right. Well, reflection is tough. So, you know, with that then, as you think about your legacy that you really want to leave behind and you reflect on how you view yourself, what would be the title of your story or autobiography? I think it would probably have something to do with every day being game day. And that feeling and that burning urge that you get when you put on a uniform or that ritual that you have before your performance of whatever it may be, it may be a musical performance, it may be a sports performance, 
that's like the fire in me every single day. And so I think it would be something along those lines of every day is game day. And I really think about it in that way. I'm showing up for my teammates and we have a job to do and I get to do it with them. And that feels really special and not something to be taken for granted. That's so fitting for your story. And I just cannot thank you enough for spending some time with us today and just being so candid and sharing all your wisdom. I truly am personally just so grateful to call you a friend and a great sounding board. So thank you for all that you do. And we're excited to see what, what's next in store. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me and, and for creating these super candid and honest conversations that don't occur enough in our industry and amongst each other. And so I'm, I'm really grateful for your leadership in continuing to create community and really dive in and hear the true authentic versions of each of ourselves. So thank you so much. Her Story is a podcast produced by Think Medium. For more leadership stories from inspiring women across healthcare, tune in every Wednesday. Please subscribe to Her Story on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever you're listening right now. You can also view Her Story episodes in video and access exclusive content on our website at thinkmedium.com. Be sure to rate and review Her Story so we can continue bringing you insights from influential women across the country. If you enjoyed this episode, we appreciate you spreading the word to your friends, family, colleagues, and mentors who might be interested. For questions and suggestions, please contact us at herstory at thinkmedium.com. Thanks for listening.